There is a myth almost, uh, teams that are almost mythical, especially in America, when this notion of uh, sports teams and the great teams that are more than the sum of their parts, etc. Does it introduce uh, another level of complexity, this notion that there is some magic that are happening because human beings are designed to work with other human beings? Something at that level. I love the term magic. Because I think you know, we were talking about this before, we kind of used the term magic. I do think there's a magic there because the chemistry, it's not what's happening at the individual decisions or the individual or the diets or the tribes. It's all of those things kind of working in parallel so that in many cases, things will happen. And it just looks like magic to you because like with a good magic trick, you're looking at the right hand, not the left hand. You're looking at the individual, not the team, or you're looking at the team and not this particular diet within the team. And so the magic occurs because you're looking at the right hand with the action on it. So breaking that part is fun. But I got to say, there's two things about the metaphor that we use magic. There's both good magic and bad. Oh. Again, I really believe that there are decisions that are so bad, so irrational, and so illogical. You can only get them out of people in the social context. An individual working alone would never make this mistake. But I can get my MBA students, my executive development students to make unbelievably stupid mistakes if I put them in a group context and set them up. Uh, let me give you one example. This yes. would never happen to an individual. But you're probably familiar with the common kind of diversity research on framing and how if you frame an issue in terms of these are the things that would be lost, you literally get in a very risk-seeking part of somebody's brain. They become risk-seeking. If you take the exact same data and just flip it around and talk about what you could gain, and these are just inverse probabilities. It's the exact same thing, but you just frame it as a gain or loss. If you tell people frame it as a gain, they become extremely conservative. And now you take that process, which is an individual process. Now you put it into a group context. And we'll take my MBAs and we'll take four MBAs that are, we do a lot of surveys. And so I'll take four MBAs that I know are really risk-seeking in general as a predisposition. And I'll take four of my MBAs that are really cautious as a predisposition. And now you can set up the framing so, oh, you're making an ir irrational decision. Relative to the probabilities, you're being way too cautious or you're being way too risky. Okay. But what happens in a group context is group polarization. That is, if you and I start overconfident, you're 80% confident, I'm 80% confident, Deborah's 80% confident. You put the five of us in a room together for like 20 minutes. And then you come back and ask us how confident we are. It's like 99. I mean, you literally polarize because, wow, Daniel, I didn't think of that. You're right. That's even better than what I thought of. And nobody has any negative information. You just kind of feed each other and feed each other. And if you take, go to my cautious students, they go just the other direction. They're afraid of everything. They will get out of bed. They start to, oh, this is only going to be 20% successful. By the time they're done, there's no chance. It's 0.01. And so only in a group context can you take people that would be a little bit irrational in common and diversity terms, make them unbelievably irrational. And then I have a slide about it. And so my students are blown away that, number one, this happened. And number two, it was so predictable that the dude's got a slide about it. And the rest of the lecture is built on this error that we all just made that we didn't even see coming. So that's why I believe is magic, because I can make this happen over and over and over again with every executive development, every MBA group. We do a thing called a $10 auction. I don't know if you're familiar with the $10 auction. No, please. Okay. You can only get our audience. <laughs> you can only get this in a group context. Basically, you put a $10 bill in an envelope and say, we're going to bidding more for this $10 bill. Now, in most situations, 
the key to an auction is figuring out what something's really worth. But you know, this is exactly worth $10. And so this auction has an interesting set of rules. If you pay the most, you get the $10. If your bid is the second highest, then you pay that bid, but you don't get the $10. Third, fourth, fifth, you're out of it. So I put that $10 in there and we start. And usually it just sits there for about 15 seconds. And Daniel, I'm talking, I've got execs that are COOs in organizations. And eventually some exec will say, it's a no-brainer. I'll pay $1 for a $10 bill. And then another guy says, two, three, four, five, six. He goes up to seven. And then they start laughing because they look at me and go, oh, Dr. Alvin, you're a bad man. Seven plus six, you're going to make a profit on this $10. Ha, ha, ha. I get it up to nine. And as always, one of the students finally says, wow, this is a really great lesson. Yes, I will pay $10 for a $10 bill. And that guy always says it like he thinks it's over. It ain't over. Because you go to the person with nine and say, I know this seems odd, but the decision confronting you now is you either eat a $9 loss for sure or take a chance. But if you say 11, notice how I frame that as a loss. You eat a $9 loss for sure. I just framed it as a loss. I put this person in this seeking mode. Yes. Or take the chance that if you say 11, this knucklehead's not going to say 12. It's a $10 bill. You know what that guy says every time? He says 11. And then you turn to the guy holding the 10 and say, I know this seems odd, but here's the decision that confronts you now. You either eat a $10 loss or you say 13 to prevent. And that guy says 13. And then these two people will go up. If you can get them to go to 19, They'll often freeze at 19. They'll have a hard time getting to 20. If you push them over 20, they'll go to 29. The most I ever got, I was actually doing an executive development in Kellogg. And it's the nicest people you ever meet. I got this thing up to 19. And I just wanted to see if I could push it to 20. And there was this woman, Sarah. And Sarah just wasn't willing to go to 20. And she was going against this guy, Frank. I don't remember their names. And her girlfriend said, Sarah, we're not going to let Frank beat you. And they take out their purses and start giving Sarah money. Now, every guy in the audience goes, well, that's just bullshit. And they take out their wallets. And Daniel, I am watching this room full of people taking out tons of money. So it becomes a battle of the sexes where they fight for this $10. And Keith Mernier, one of my heroes, University of Illinois, actually got $1,900 for a $20 bill one time. This is a record. No individual working alone would ever do this. But if you put them in a group context, here's your magic. Now, it's not good magic. It's bad magic. And you kind of, in an MBA class or an executive development class, you kind of have to teach people escalation commitment and why you need to have circuit breakers on certain decision processes. Like you make the original initial investment, but you don't make the reinvestment decision because you're wasted. You're done. Somebody with a cold, hard, calculated heart will make the reinvestment decision. And so there's a bunch of things you can do for escalation yes. commitment. But I'm not done yet, Dan. I'm going to give you one more. Because once I get all these money from these execs, I don't want it. And so I want to give it back. And so we play something called an ultimatum game. And the ultimatum game goes like this. There's two people. You make an offer. And it's an ultimatum. We don't negotiate. I can either accept your offer or turn it down. Okay? So it's an ultimatum. Now, winner of the game is the person. And usually at the end of a $10 auction, I have like 30 bucks I want to give away. So I want to give this money away. And you make an offer, and the person who wins the money is the person that can take the most value out of that thing, but still get the other person to say, yes, I accept it. And so I will tell you, I usually get it started. And so you and I are playing. I got there's $30 in there, Daniel. I'll take 29 of it if you want. Well, I mean, how are you going to react to that? I'll tell you, all my exec students, they're like, no, that's unfair. And then they say no. 
And then you go down to the next person. How about 28 and two? No. 27 and three? No. I will have people literally say no to $12. And then you say to them, do you understand that you just violated every rational economic principle in the world? Your choice is between $12 and zero. And you took zero. And then the exec will go, hell yeah, because the other guy got it. It's like, no, stop, stop. And we call that counting other people's money. Rather than making decisions about your own money, you're yes. making decisions about other people's money. I mean, there's so many of these things that you know in advance you set up. I want to give you one more and then open up your questions because this is a really important one. If you ever tried to, in my business, try to teach the Challenger Space Shuttle, it's very difficult. Thank God somebody came up with the card racing. Charter racing team is a case where basically you walk an NBA team or execs through a situation where they have to decide whether or not they want to race in a NASCAR thing. It's the last Sunday of the year. Here's been your history. The car's been breaking down. You're funding the people who sponsor you are upset. And they lay out all the contingencies of if you race and win, yay, this happens. If you race and you're competitive, yeah, this happens. If you're racing, you lose, ah, oh, that's okay. But if you race and the car doesn't finish because you've been unreliable, that's a disaster. And you walk all of these NBA teams through it. And in the end, I will tell you, Daniel, every single one of these teams, they race. And then you have the greatest moment when you flip the slide and go, congratulations, you just launched Space Challenger. And then you show the Space Challenger. If you try to teach the Space Challenger, everybody looks at that and goes, well, what a bunch of idiots. Didn't they see the O-ring data? Didn't they see what the temperature was? Didn't they say, see the, where the wind was coming from? The Carter Racing Team is the exact same data. But now you have to detect it in advance after, instead of explaining it after the fact. And again, for most of my students, when number one, you tell them you just launched a space shuttle, and then they knew that I know that they were going to launch it. And now let's talk about decision-making errors under high-stress context in the face of previous failures. And all of a sudden, they're a little bit more open to listening about it. Where if you try to teach the space challengers, the space challengers, like, now, I would never do that. What a bunch of idiots. Those guys are stupid. What's wrong with them? That's a default. Aren't they trying? No, 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 no. You would do it. And so that's kind of the bad mashing, that these things are completely predictable. You can only get certain bad things out of it that you couldn't get out of an individual. So that's a lot of the fun of it, too. Well, thank you for sharing all these stories. They are basically cautionary tales about that magic, maybe it's a black magic of team at some point, because it has to do with reemphasizing why it's really important to understand team dynamics and to try to put in place the right structures, the right processes, the right interactions in order to prevent those kind of groupthink phenomena that you described earlier, group polarization or other situation in which people at that point, do not optimize their utility functions, but are trying basically to establish, to maximize some other function that has to do with the social hierarchy in the team. Who is the person who's going to win the auction, for example? Now, in a lot of situations that I know our audience is going to find themselves, work teams, those things may not happen to the extreme that you can orchestrate in your MBA classes with your MBA students, but they do happen all the time. We see very often in meetings, things deteriorate. And when you look at them at posteriori, you say, well, the team forgot what they were trying to do. They got into another situation. But we know from history that this notion of establishing consensus too fast for the sake of consensus is actually dangerous. 
The Cuban Missile Crisis is a classic example that people talked about for all these advisors basically reinforcing each other's mistaken beliefs. Yeah. Again, two things on that before we leave that. Because the Cuban Missile Crisis is kind of an interesting example. Because I do feel that we as team researchers do a lot of predicting after the fact. And we often blame teams for kind of things that we're saying here in many cases where you don't have the counterfactual evidence. The things that I've been talking about, we know what the rational decision was. We know what the counterfactual evidence is. But in so many team contexts, because you didn't go a particular direction, you don't even know what would have happened had we gone that direction. And so it really does kind of promote, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, which Janice really got people used to this paradigm where some really smart person would go into the archives of some decision fiasco and then dissect it. And just like the Carter Racing team, tell you all the things these idiots did wrong. And we got to really be careful. That's why we need a science. We need a science where you kind of have to make your predictions in advance and easy to predict the future after it's happened. Yogi Berra, the future's hard to predict in advance. And so I think we really got to check. That's why scientifically, I kind of believe in kind of quantitative science. I'm always a little leery of qualitative studies where people go in knowing what already happened or kind of going in there with a particular angle. You got to predict the future in advance. And so what I try to do with my classes is to show that some of this science is so magical. I can't predict it in advance. I can build a whole lesson plan around it. That's how irrational you're about to be. Oh, yeah, that's the fun of it. That's the magic of it. I love to teach this stuff. I love to research this stuff. I love going to work every single day. I can't wait to find out what we're going to screw up next <laughs> and then kind of fix it and move on. So, yeah, I'm totally fascinated by all of that. Yeah, no, I stand corrected. I didn't mean that those historical examples, I know that they're being taught as paradigms of decision-making mistakes or misunderstanding of the situation in teams or in groups. My point is that, and I remember we worked on some of those projects in the past in which when you do the forensics of something that was disastrous, where lives were lost, as we have many examples in the military, for example, or in industry, and you interview the folks that were in the middle of that decision-making process that are now, in a posteriori, being almost accused of being characterized as having made a mistake. But once you immerse them back in the same situation, they are all pretty adamant that given what I knew at the time, with all the uncertainties at the time about the information and the time I had to make a decision, I will do exactly the same thing today. 